Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the President and Associate Professor of Old Testament at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hi, Scott. I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Lee, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students at RTS. Hi, Peter. Hi, Scott. Good seeing you again. I'm also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament at RTS and real pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in Tyson's area. Hey, Paul. Real pastor reporting in. <laughs> and I'm joined by... Uh, Dr. Grace Sutanto, who is our uh, already not yet professor of systematic theology here at RTS, calling in from Jakarta, Indonesia. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Once again, great to be here. Great to have you here. We're glad to also get some work out of you before we actually start sending you paychecks. So thanks for joining us. I want to start with talking about, there's a little flurry over the last week of articles looking at Christian responses to the COVID virus. I'm thinking of two in particular. Tommy, you, you pointed out the Atlantic article by Jonathan Merritt talking about Christians failing, I think was the, was the phrase that was used, Christians failing in the right. midst of the COVID crisis. And there was another article that is an interesting pairing with it that um, comes out of the New York Times written by one of our locals here, Peter Weiner, who goes to McLean Presbyterian Church and actually cites a couple of RTS folks in it, uh, James Forsyth, who teaches pastoral theology for us and is uh, the senior pastor at McLean Prez, and Bill Fullalove, who is the dean of students, teaches up at RTS New York and teaches for us from time to time here in Washington as well. And it kind of gives an interesting pairing on different ways in which Christians are being perceived, I think that's important, perceived as responding to the COVID virus. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, it, coming across the kind of both simultaneously, it was interesting to kind of read them in conversation with one another, though they're not, though they're, though they're not technically in dialogue. I, I, I got a little frustrated with the Atlantic article, to be honest, because it, there was this kind of, uh, there were uh, citations of various um, uh, responses from Christians, some of which were not uh, in context or, uh, I thought, appropriately uh, nuanced, but, but really what what bothered me was if there was not a, a criteria for what constitutes failing. Like, what what does it mean to fail in in this? Um, a, a number of the the quotations were simply looked to me like simply just Christians trying to honestly wrestle with why is this happening? Um, what how does God use things like this? Like, there's a theology of providence that. Uh, folks like John Piper and others were trying to kind of wrestle with and think honestly about. And we, we talked about that in our very first episode, the challenges and dangers of doing that. Um, and so some of the risks there, I thought, were on display and were helpfully noted. But at the same time, you know, that, that our theological motives do drive a set of questions and asking those questions is not necessarily wrong or not necessarily failing. So at times I kind of wondered what was the criteria here, uh, and as as the article kind of went through, um, it, se it seemed like the criteria was well this doesn't sound good you know this doesn't sound nice or loving it sounds more judgmental. I get that. I think it's important for us to make sure that we we are leading sympathy first in our in our response to to the culture. Um, and making sure that it's not, we aren't, we're not only doing that, but sounding like we're doing that. I, I think that's very healthy. Um, and yet I wonder also, okay, where is there room for us to have a kind of a public discourse about the, the mysteries of God and the way in which our theology matches our experience in life? The John Piper quote, to me, I mean, to your point, sounded like a basic kind of statement of divine sovereignty or something like that. Now, yeah. 
of course, the thing you choose to say when someone asks you, how do we think about COVID virus or something like that, if that's your first response, then I guess it's fair to say, well, this is sort of the theology that he's establishing. Though, I mean, to say that God sometimes uses disease to bring judgment, that's a kind of basic biblical truth. And yet at the same time to say, and that's what's happening in this case is taking it a step further. I thought it was interesting that it was paired in that opening paragraph with a comment by Rusty Reno, who seems to me to be making more of a kind of bland economic, or maybe not bland, but an economic political point using you know, theological or religious language. And it's odd to me to kind of clump these two disparate quotes together and say, this is how Christians are responding or something like that. It seems a little reductionistic. And I know that, I mean, Jonathan Merritt even comments on this in the article, but he's, he's been pretty open in how he himself is wrestling with his own fundamentalist background. And, and I'm sure that's, that's painting some of what he's talking about here in a particular light. Um, but the New York Times article, I thought, you know, by Pete Weiner offered a, a much more balanced and, as you said, you know, sensitive and tender response to the, the very real suffering and tragedy that people are facing in the midst of this crisis. Uh, yeah, I thought the New York Times piece, you know, it, it fronted some of the things that actually the Merit article wanted to see, which is, you know, how are we loving, how are we caring for those and the needy? And that was the particular concern of most of the the pastors and leaders quoted in the, the New York Times, the New York Times piece. This is uh, Peter talking here. Um, uh, it, it did seem, uh, you know, I think the striking thing in the Atlantic article is this idea that what we're suffering through with COVID-19 is a direct uh, representation of the wrath of God uh, against sin. Um, uh, and that uh, does seem to me kind of a, a somewhat unhelpful oversimplification. Um, you know, there have been similar responses to things like AIDS when that broke out, um, there's a distinction, I think, that we can make between, uh, you know, consequences of sin directly in terms of the wrath of God versus living in a fallen world. You know, we live in a world that has been directly affected by sin, by the fall, and thus we have to suffer through that. Uh, but that's not always necessarily the same direct result as our own personal sin. But cancer is an unfortunate consequence of living in a world that has just been directly affected by the uh, by sin, and um, and and we have to struggle through that. But at any rate, it just seems to me we can't just oversimplify this aspect of the wrath of God equals COVID nineteen. Yeah, that, that just seems to be an unhelpful uh, simplifying uh, oversimplification of something that is um, much more complex. I, I suspect if we were to take a, uh, if we were to meet with people who have suffered through this, that, you know, you're going to find atheists as well as good Christian pastors. The disease is not making any, you know, it's, it's, it's not prejudicial. It's not, it's unbiased. It, it, it doesn't care uh, in terms of our uh, religious convictions. And so, um, uh, it just, uh, you know, to directly associate that with the wrath of God. I just, I don't find that a helpful way of, uh, of understanding what's going on with this. Yeah, right. It's, it actually can be reductionistic in another direction, you know, of saying, well, it's clear, it has to be this or it has to be that. And yet, I think to Tommy's earlier point, there probably does need to be a forum in which we can talk about theological implications of events going on in the world around us. And it seems that at least in some quarters, talking through the options, you know, might be considered gauche or harsh or something like that. And of course, this isn't what should be coming in at the hospital bed or in the counseling room, perhaps. But there, there needs to be a place where we can have a conversation about what does the Bible say about suffering and tragedy, even at this global cosmic kind of level that we can talk about it when we talk about the effects of the fall. Peter, I remember reading your book on suffering, and I, I really loved the first chapter. I did read more than just the first chapter, but I really loved the, uh, the first chapter where you kind of work out the, the different types. I, I don't remember the exact word you described it, but the different types of suffering that God puts in our path. And 
you know, sometimes it's a general suffering like cancer. Sometimes it is, you know, a punishment or a disciplinary act against a particular sin. And the different ways in which, I think there were 13 ways in which God ca- calls us at times to to suffer. And it struck me that each one of those kind of will map on to the providence of God question a bit differently and 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 result in a different kind of analysis. So I, I think it'd be good to have a forum like that, but time and place, right, that sometimes you just, the, the conversation is so charged or so uh, so heated that you can't really have an honest dialogue. You need some space. You need some time to be able to, to assess those things. Uh, yeah, I think that goes hand in hand with um, something that I read not too long ago from Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he talks about different types of suffering there too. And um, we're preaching as well uh, through the book of Job right now. And I just preached last week on Eliphaz's first response or rebuke to Job. And Eliphaz's response in many ways can be boiled down to the simple claim that God must be punishing Job, that the innocent simply cannot perish. And Job, if your family is perishing, then by good and necessary consequence, you must therefore not be innocent. You must be guilty. So please expose yourself, repent, and own up to whatever it is that you're hiding from God, right? And I think that that's the the basic mistake that people can make with regard to suffering or even with regard to this pandemic. They see suffering and then immediately they infer that this must be retributive suffering, that this must be suffering as punishment. When what we see in the book of Job, for example, is that this is not suffering for punishment. This is not retributive suffering, but this is uh, mysterious suffering. Job was actually blameless. In other words, it's not that Job was perfectly sinless, but Job didn't do anything particular to cause God to do something in response to this in terms of a punishment, right? And you see this definitely in scripture. You see there's a, a kind of sanctifying suffering in the book of First Peter, the suffering that purifies you like, like fire. That's not suffering for punishment, right? Um, there's also suffering that is for the greater good. And we see this ultimately in the cross of Christ, that God was pleased to crush the son, not because he was pleased with the evil itself that brought him to the cross, but he does bring about a greater good um, out of it, namely our salvation and our redemption. And so I think uh, perhaps the caution for Christians uh, with regard to this pandemic is reminding us that there are actually different kinds of suffering, that there's a complexity to life and suffering. We shouldn't infer that any particular kind of suffering must be tied to one particular sin or or is simply a punishment for sin. I'm really glad, actually, and I appreciate you brought up the Book of Job in something like this, because if, if there is a book of the Bible that really wants to slam that very simplistic argument that all suffering is a result of sin, uh, in one sense, it, it really is the Book of Job. In fact, that's exactly the point, in, in some sense, that is, uh, that, that is arguing against. It, it's interesting how the error of both Job and his friends is built on the same faulty kind of theological approach to the idea of suffering. They both believe in simple retributive theology. You know, uh, all sin or all suffering is a result of sin. You know, his three Job's friends believed it. That's why they are trying to lead Job to repentance. Uh, Job believed it as well. That's part of the problem. That's why he saw God is unjust because all sin is res- all suffering is a result of sin. Job hasn't sinned, but he's suffering. He can't figure it out. Thus, God must be unjust. Uh, it's interesting how both sides of the uh, dialogue is built on the fundamentally flawed theological approach to suffering, and you see that a little bit even in the uh, Atlantic article that we were talking about. Just you know, there really probably is a need for a, a systematic theological study on Christian suffering. You know, uh, a real clear understanding of proper distinctions. What kinds of suffering does the Bible define? How does the Bible uh, offer words of encouragement to suffering uh, and and the various different kinds? And to just sort of take suffering as sort of one kind of entity, uh, you know, in Scripture and with one outcome 
again, just seems to me uh, unhelpful because the Bible is much more sensitive to the kinds of suffering that's out there and the way that the Lord responds or what the Lord re, uh, uh, expects from us in terms of an application and the response uh, to it. Well, tell you what, I want to move from this topic to another topic closely related to Christian suffering, which is the study of the ancient languages and their use in the interpretation of scripture. So we're hopping, as it were, from one ring in Dante's Inferno to another. <laughs> and um, I say that as students are now wrapping up their Hebrew exegesis and Greek exegesis curriculums at RTS Washington, there's this focus in, in the Reformed tradition on exegeting the scriptures, and that, is, that means interpreting scriptures from the original languages. That would be the Hebrew and Aramaic of the Old Testament and the Greek, okay, and all of the little loan words that they get dispersed throughout both of those, um, both of those cor corpora, as it were. Um, you know, in many ways, I, I remember hearing one time a study on the role of um, returning to original languages in influencing the Reformation and, and reading about John Calvin studying Hebrew at a synagogue so that he could better read his Hebrew Bible. You know, and, and Reuchlin's Hebrew grammar coming out and playing a major role in people returning to the Hebrew and the Greek Bibles, you know, kind of going behind the Vulgate and how important that was to the Reformed tradition and continues to be today. So let me pose this question. Why is it important for pastors and church leaders, teachers of scripture, to not only be able to interpret and teach the English Bible, but to interpret and teach out of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts? Paul Jean. Scott, let me say some preliminary remarks about this. And this might perturb some of our uh, listeners. I often hear pastors say that the languages are not that important anymore because the commentaries out there are so good or the translations are so good. But I have yet to meet a pastor that knows the languages enough to say that they're not useful. So I think it's like, for instance... If I don't really know accounting, but then I say to anyone that's considering business, accounting's not that important. It's only the accountant that really knows accounting well and has uh, seen its value that can be in a place of discerning you know, whether or not it's helpful. Now, I think maybe sometimes people might be responding to the overemphasis that's placed on the languages as if you cannot do effective exegesis and ministry without knowing the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. I think that's an overstatement. But I think equally overstated is this idea that the languages are not at all important. I think one thing, um, well, actually I have a lot of thoughts on this because I teach Greek exegesis, but one thing is um, no matter how good a translation is, it does represent an interpretation. You just cannot get around that. And, you know, obviously some translations could be considered superior to others, right? But I think that, you know, those who go into ministry, especially pastors, they are called to really exegete, expound, amplify the word of God. And the languages give a kind of a precision that you just cannot get or accomplish without the languages, right? It is a lot more work. And I will admit that, let's say you put in so much um, energy into exegeting like the text and you only get one nugget, but that one nugget I think is worth it. And so um, outside of doing a kind of original language exegesis, no matter how good your translation or commentary is, you are still ultimately uh, depending or relying too much on the interpretation of another when your calling is to engage the primary sources. And so I think it's worth, you know, I think it's worth it. That's great. I, I know, I don't know about you guys. I know when I'm writing a sermon or a class, Paul, to your point, I've found that 
I used to think I would do the language work and then I'd do sort of the theological interpretation and then I would do the application. And more and more in my study over the last 20 years, I found that it was often during the language work that the seeds of the application started to come up. It was doing that kind of cross-linguistic, cross-cultural analysis of exegesis where I started to get seeds of how this would apply into the audience to whom I was teaching or preaching. That's really interesting. I, I, I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but uh, at language work is that cross-cultural analysis, but that's, that's precisely what it is, right? You're moving from one system, one set of cultural assumptions, uh, one language game, as it were, to another, and that requires a level of historical and social uh, sensitivity, both to the ancient uh, culture and to your contemporary culture that uh, kind of forces the question in a, in a way. And Paul, to your point, I think that's where you said no matter how good your translations are, I mean, our translations are excellent. You, we have amazing translations out there, but they're all bad translations, not because they're bad translations, but because they're translations. They, they, they hide information from you simply because they're translations. And in, in kind of Greek, one of the big Greek questions Greek exegetical games that we play is like the faith of Christ debate. Pistis Christu, should we translate that faith of Christ, like the faithfulness of Christ or faith in Christ? Well, your translation, whatever translation it is, has to make a decision on that. It, it has to translate it one way or the other. It, it doesn't have the option to, to punt it down the field. And it makes the decision for you. And, you know, like Schrodinger's cat, then the other option is lost to you as an English reader. You, do, you, you can't get back to, the, inf to the, the information unless you know the original languages. And I, I think one of the things that students miss here is that you think you're learning the languages in order to come at the answers, in order to get all of the answers to your Bible questions. But actually, one of the primary functions of knowing the languages is knowing what questions are out there questions that you wouldn't be able to ask from the English because the English translation, good though it is, has made a decision on your behalf and precisely because it's a translation has hidden the data from you. Uh, so, so a lot of times, actually, the Greek, the Hebrew, the original languages make the questions more difficult, but because they make it more difficult, they make you more humble uh, and, and force you to wrestle with the text and the culture behind the text in a way that you wouldn't otherwise have to do. Okay, so how do we pair this with this other reform doctrine? So a high view of original languages of the early manuscripts. How do we pair this with this other doctrine of perspicuity of scripture, that the scriptures are clear in their teaching? How, mm -hmm. how do I say that to the person who doesn't know Hebrew and Greek? Can they rightly study God's word? Or uh, a kind of twist on the same question may be like, does somebody who is reading the English, reading it in their native language, do they have the very words of God before them? Yeah, right. Your question is it's sort of the follow-up. The way I always do it in class is you, know, you hold up an English Bible, and I'm holding up an English Bible right now, and can I say this is the word of God, right, from the pulpit? Or do I have to hold up a BHS, you know, Biblia Hebraica Stukartensia, you know, or, or something else and say, and to, to rightly say this is the word of God? Personally, I think there's kind of two poles here. One is to understand the doctrine of perspicuity. The confessional standards are very clear that perspicuity applies to the main thrust of Scripture, the, the, the gospel message of Scripture, that not all things are alike clear in all ways, and, uh, you know, and, that, and that it applies, of course, to the, the autographs. So you know, you've got, this, you've got the, a pretty qualified definition in, in the standards on the one hand. Uh, and then the other angle I'd take it is when we're dealing with translation, it's not that we don't have the Word of God. It's, it's that we uh, need to you know, make adjustments for the fact and allowances for the fact that some of the data is not available to me as I read my English translation. And you just need to be careful and humble about how much weight I put on 
mm-hmm. that at my my exegetical material there. Uh, my exe- exegesis is like uh, a pickup truck. Uh, you have to know how much weight that that pickup truck can bear. And if you're working from the the Hebrew and the Greek, your pickup truck can bear more weight than you're working from the English. But the English is still exegetically sufficient to bring the Word of God to me as a reader and as a thinker of uh, God's thoughts after him. Yeah, I mean, confessionally, when the West, when Westminster articulates perspicuity or clarity of Scripture, it says, you know, according to the due use of ordinary means, and that's, that includes translations, right? Yeah. You know, biblically, theologically, I, I'm always impressed that Paul can quote the Septuagint and say, thus saith the Lord, you know. So he's, Paul is happy, the apostle is happy to use translation. Um, Christ is happy, I shouldn't say happy, probably. He's, he, he is pleased to say things in Aramaic that are from Aramaic translations of the Hebrew. And uh, those aren't mediated or something like that. So you can say these translations insofar as they rightly translate the original, you can say these are, um, you know, authoritative as God's word, but uh, recognize that this is this translation work is this do your do use of ordinary means that Westminster talks about, which is really I think you know a part of the work of the pastor and the scholar, which is to present the text in a way that is understandable to the audience. Yeah, one way to get at the uh, question of whether or not we actually have the word of God in our English Bibles before us is to uh, think about this as well with terms of the philosophy of language. Um, we can take, uh, for example, the distinction between type and token in analytic philosophy, or simply the distinction between proposition and language itself. In other words, you can communicate the same proposition through two different languages. Uh, people oftentimes confuse propositions with sentences, uh, namely sentences of a particular language, but actually propositions are anything that carries meaning, anything that carries meaningful predication. And so if I say, please take out the trash um, in one language, and then I say it again in Indonesian, let's say, uh, I'm not actually communicating a different proposition, or in that case, a different command. Um, it's still the same command in English or in Indonesian, or the same proposition in English or in Indonesian or in Greek or Hebrew, but that proposition is now couched in different language. And in the same way, we can therefore say that, we, yes, we have to do more work and we have to uh, um, consult the original languages when we have the English texts, right? Uh, we can't simply assume that the um, translation carries the right interpretation because every translation is an interpretation. But at the same time, we can say that there's a reliability that these English language Bibles actually still communicate the same meaningful propositions as the original languages themselves. Yeah. Well, Gray, you are you are a translator of a different sort, um, having actually done translation of Dutch with Bavink's Christian theology, uh, Christian worldview, um, and and I know elsewhere in your academic work. Have you felt some of that dynamic in the way you know, the, the the understanding the Dutch and being and trying to couch that or articulate that in English? Have you noticed that there are things lost and that there are things that are able to be retained um, in that process? Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Um, So especially when you're reading a really difficult Dutch academic text like you would get in someone like Vavink, you would actually see him use technical Dutch terms to describe um, particular things that he's trying to describe, right? So uh, not trying to get too technical here, but there's, there's basically two words that often get confused in terms of the English translations of Bavink's thought. Um, Bavink uses these words very technically. So he's got this word called Vorstellingen and another word uh, called Indrücken. And basically Vorstellingen gets translated as representations or notions or uh, uh, concepts. Indrücken at the same time also could get translated as notions, representations, sometimes even concepts or even uh, impressions, right? So in the English, all you could see are the words notions uh, maybe in in the same paragraph, but actually the word notion is translating two different words there. You see that? Um, So that 
when we actually try to see what's behind the original English translation, he's actually using two different words that each get translated in the same way, namely notions or representations. And he's actually trying to get at something very different with these two Dutch words that get translated by the same English word, right? He actually uses Vorstellungen to refer to conscious, voluntary, conceptual formation. Uh, Vorstellungen he would use as um, you voluntarily, conceptually forming something in your own mind. On the other hand, he would also use terms like indrücken, which for him actually refers to involuntary impressions that you get in ordinary life. So when you get up, you see the ceiling, there's this impression of the ceiling upon you, you didn't have to think about it, there's this phenomenological uh, knowledge of the ceiling, that's mm -hmm. how he uses that, you see that. Um, so, but, but when you take a look at the English and you're not really paying attention to how he's using these terms, you can simply think, oh, there's notions of the ceiling, there are notions of theology, but actually there are two different Dutch terms for those same English uh, words, right? There's also the case with Boving that he uses different languages too. Um, I mean, sometimes he's often, uh, you know, switches to English or German, and you won't pick that up if you're just reading the English translation. So um, one very uh, good example of this is that uh, Boving would oftentimes use the Latin term principium, um, and that could be translated as foundation or source of theology or something like that, right? But there's also other Dutch terms for foundation, like uh, I won't mention them because I probably butchered the pronunciation, but also I don't want to get too technical again. But basically, we have to take a look at the original languages to see whether or not he's referring to these Dutch terms, which are more commonly called foundations or something like that, or he's actually having in mind the Latin term of principium or something like that. So for Boving, definitely, um, we have to get at the original languages if we really want to study him in a technical, systematic, theological fashion um, there. I remember that relief in during my doctoral work of reading a, trans, a French translation of Ugaritic Bale cycles uh, by Coco and Schnitzer, and uh, which everybody, of course, has that on their shelf, I can tell just by looking at your faces right now. And... Um, I remember the relief that would come when he when they would actually get to a new Ugaritic word, because I wasn't quite sure what they were saying in French, but when they got to the Ugaritic word, now we came to this shared thing. And I'm thinking of you reading Bavink. I'm sure your Dutch is better than my academic French was, uh, but suddenly coming upon a Latin phrase and realizing, oh, I can take a break for a minute because I know I, I definitely know what he means here. Um, Great. I want to ask you as a theologian in your own right as a, as a systematician, what role does understanding the original languages and uh, the role of exegesis, I guess, more generally, what role does that play in your own work as a theologian? Yeah, thanks. I think that getting at the original languages are incredibly important because um, of a few theological, philosophical, historical beliefs that we have, right? I mean, Theologically, we believe that God's special revelation should norm our reading of general revelation. And so we understand that God's general revelation is absolutely clear. We are rendered without excuse, but at the same time, God has revealed himself according to our capacity and he has revealed himself in human language. So the fact that God has taken uh, uh, this, this, this human language in order to communicate himself shouldn't be taken lightly by us. This is uh, an act of free benevolence. And so we should take the languages that he has chosen seriously so that we might understand who he is. Um, and so this is accommodated revelation for us, just for our benefit that we might understand him. And also just thinking about the task of the theologian. You now, when you think about the language of sacred doctrine in the medieval ages, sacred doctrine was simply a gloss for studying the Bible. Um, the work of the, the, uh, the theologian was simply that, to lecture and teach the Bible, to form commentaries on the Bible, to expound on the Bible. We could also think about Machen's uh, purpose for designing a seminary, which is to create specialists in the Bible. A theologian, in other words, has to be a very good exegete. I think that's what a theologian has to do um, for him to be a responsible theologian to take seriously God's revelation. But not only that, you actually see exegesis, right, uh, not only as necessary, but it's also incredibly formative for classical theology, for the theology and the Reformed Confessions, theology that we now confess as the church, right? 
one example of this maybe a, a, a simpler example is, is Philippians 2, uh, 6 to 7, where it talks about Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not take quality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather take on the form of a servant. Now, wh whether you're looking at the ESV or the NASB, they're both very good translations, but they both say something like he existed in the form of God uh, and didn't take that uh, to be something to be grasped or it's while he existed in the form of God. So there's this movement to describe him being in the form of God in terms of the past tense. He existed in the form of God and then took on the form of a servant. But when you take a look at the original Greek, there is actually an active participle there that being God while being God, in other words, he took on the form of a servant. So you see this, uh, this, this is only in my brain because I was just teaching Christology recently. And so I had to brush up on a lot of this material, but you see this in, in passages in Luke 16, for example, when it talked about, I think, uh, you know, there was, uh, I believe it was Lazarus who was being tormented in hell and he cried out, right? So that while he was tormented in hell and Hades, I think it was the language. Then this is Luke 16, 23 or something. While he was tormented, he cried out. And that's the same word. And it's, it's, they're both participial forms. They're active participles. And so while Jesus was in the form of God, in other words, him being in the form of God was the, the continuous backdrop for him to take on the form of servant. It's not as if he was God and he ceased being God. Like he subtracted from his deity or ceased being God. And then he became a servant, but rather he continued to be God. And while being God, he took on the form of servant. And that's, I think, something that really comes out when you take a look at the Greek participle. Uh, and again, you need to know the Greek to understand that kind of nuance and not just pick up the, the, the English, you know, he existed in the form of God or something like that, as if it's just a past tense. That would go, therefore, against canonic Christologies. And so as a systematic theologian, you have to take a look at the original languages. Uh, more examples, you know, about prepositions and inseparable operations. Uh, the father was from whom everything was created, but it was through the son that God had created everything, that even though uh, uh, God is one and so his operations are indivisible, it doesn't mean that the persons of the Trinity are simply uh, synonymous or interchangeable, right? There's, there's appropriate language to accrue to father, son, and spirit, even in the work of creation. You see that in so many texts in scripture. So lots of benefits and lots of theological fruits that could come out of using the original languages there. Those interpretations and applications are also important because it gives us real biblical language to describe these things that maybe we're used to talking about in sort of a systematic context using technical jargon. And I love, I, there's a few things for me maybe as a biblical scholar more satisfying than seeing a technical systematic theological doctrine articulated in a different way in scripture and yet articulating the same doctrine or corroborating the same doctrine. Um, you know, the, those participles, the grammar of the participle has deep and important consequences for our theology of Christ, right? And that's, I love seeing that happen. I love this. There's nothing better than seeing a systematic theologian who knows how to read the Bible and there's nothing actually I think kind of more depressing than seeing a systematic theologian who, as you're reading him, you get the sense he doesn't know how to read the Bible. That's, that's also, you know, that, that's the flip side of this is when, when there's not that exegetical background, it drains so much value, I think, from the systematic theological endeavor. I think we should note here, longtime reader, longtime listeners will know that in the backdrop here, we have a uh, editor, producer, and advisor, Timoteo Sazo, who is also a translator in his own, own right. And I think we should force him to tell us a story about translating uh, Chad Van Dixhorn's Westminster Confession book into Spanish. Put him on the spot. I guess I would take a different angle because I'm not dealing with the kind of like the historical wall. You know, I'm translating contem contemporary English translating Confessing the Faith, which is a reader's guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The, the text of the, of the confession has, has been given to me, so I'm not dealing with that. I'm just dealing with the commentary. And for example, things that I find are examples or illustrations that Chad Van Dixon uses 
that don't quite translate to the Latin American or Spanish speaking world. So he um, he's talking about covenants and he says that sometimes scripture describes a covenant without using the term covenant. And for that, he uses this illustration of he's walking down the street and he sees three ladies sharing some food and um, talking and, you know, sharing the local gossip. And like, basically, he says that you don't need to have the word tea party on top of that description to know that that's a tea party. In the same way, when you get to, you know, when you're in the Bible, you, you can see the, the elements of a covenant without seeing the word covenant. So but then tea party, okay, so now, so now moving to the translation, tea party is not something that you find in the Hispanic or, you know, Latin American culture or that, that concept. You, you'd have to find a different way to express it. So I wrestled with, um, with the idea of perhaps creating a, a different example, creating a different illustration so that the point would come across. So um, I guess I'm, I'm not dealing here with, you know, sacred scripture, but those are the kind of decisions that you have to make as a translator that are not evident to the, to the reader of a translation. Sorry, I think that's, that's, I think that's super interesting. It kind of goes back to, to Scott's point about the cultural distance that exists in any sort of translation here, you've got two contemporary languages and yet you've got to make that cultural and social, even can we say like pastoral shift? Like how do I get this message across in the context of a different situation and a different set of cultural assumptions? I, I find that in incredibly interesting. And, it, and it's one of those things that translators as by the very fact that they're translating, you're constantly making those kinds of decisions. And it's, it's impossible as a, you know, reading in translation to kind of get back to the, the question that's being asked. I think there's a, there should almost be a requirement that after you finish Hebrew and Greek exegesis, that you now have to go teach a Greek, a text out of the Greek in another culture. Like send somebody over to Shanghai and say, go teach you know, the Lord's prayer in Shanghai using the Greek. And you experience that so quickly, you know, how you're moving from one culture to your culture and then explaining it to another culture. You experience that transition. And I think it's excellent. It, for me, actually, it's, it's, it's incredibly interesting and fascinating to think about that conundrum of exegesis and application. Um, but you also have that experience of, okay, there is, here's the biblical text, and we can all sit and talk about that and try to understand it in light of these cultural shifts and, and you know, the prisms of our own autobiographies that we're bringing to the table as we sit down with a, a text that is itself cross-cultural. You know, um, it, it's kind of, you know, it can become it can become sort of a fascinating pastime as well as a vocation uh, for people who are interested in it. I appreciated Tebow's comments about, um, you know, trying to communicate, uh, you know, from one original or from one uh, language to another and how difficult that is to be kind of literal, I guess, for lack of a better word, because um, there are times when that, that is is not helpful. Um, you know, we in, as translation strategies go, there's you know this discussion about uh, a dynamic versus literal equivalence in translations, and I've often found that a uh, an unhelpful distinction to make because in in many ways, because we are going from one language to another, there is no such thing as a literal translation. Everything is a certain form of a level of um, dynamic equivalence or formal equivalent. I think, uh, you know, since Hebrew is my background, like the, the best example or just one that popped into my head is the, the, as we were talking about earlier, is the phrase, the wrath of God or the anger of God. Although there's a perfectly good word for wrath in, in Hebrew, the, the, the more common phrase that you see is, is actually 
skin literally in Hebrew is the nose of God becoming hot. Uh, and that's what it reads literally in, in Hebrew when it talks about God's anger burning against Israel or the nations. But yet I don't know of any translator who would translate that literally as the nose of God became hot because that's not what it's trying to say. It's trying to say that the anger of God was was burning against whomever and uh and there's an and that's just sort of one example of of where you know the the meaning seems to be more important than trying to get word literal uh, uh translations across i often get asked what my favorite translation is and i always say well the one that i use is the one that's being used by the people in the pews at the place where i'm preaching but you know, I think you can actually sit down with the NIV and find some great translations of their Psalter. I think that's really the strong suit of the NIV's Old Testament is its Psalter. And I think the ESV is really good with other books. And to be honest, I think the New Living Translation does a really good job on some sections. But this idea that actually persists in the Reformed sort of popular church world is that, well, the more wooden or literal the translation, the better. And I found that to be a, a wholly unhelpful uh, bias within the uh, sort of the, the pop, of a popular viewpoint within the Reformed tradition. Yeah, I, I agree. The, uh, I guess the, the spirit of everything that we've been discussing here is something, dear friends, I, I really appreciate uh, everything that we're saying here and everything that has been shared has been, uh, I, I think, incredibly helpful. The, we don't marginalize our English translations because they are good translations. They are reliable. They, they communicate the clarity of the gospel. We talked about perspicuity earlier, and, and that's important. You can, you know, you can, you know, perhaps I'm going to work myself out of a job here, but, you know, you could sit down and read Galatians or read Romans, I'll stay in the New Testament to preserve my position here. <laughs> you know, you can read the New Testament in 30 minutes, let's say, and you have the, the message of the gospel to you. Uh, and, and, and you can read that in the NIV and the ESV or uh, the Old King James. And, and that's the beauty. And, and I have to, you know, we have to also remember that is in the spirit of our Reformed tradition to uh, to hold to the original documents, but yet to celebrate the fact that it's made available and accessible to to God's people. And I think that's great. Um, well said, Peter. And it's a good note to end on. Um, before we close up, any recommendations for our hearers? Uh, anything that you've stumbled upon over the last week or couple of weeks that you'd like to recommend? And of course, we also need to get... Um, a Harry, po Harry Potter as anti-hero update from Dr. Peter Lee. Sorry, I, I, I've been lacking in my uh, Harry Potter reading this week only because uh, I'm trying to get caught up on grading. You know that thing that we have to do? Oh, oh so. pull in the grading card. Pull in the grading card. Uh, well, it, 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 I'm just trying to be responsible. You know, I'm trying to do my due diligence. Uh, you know, Gray, you're going to be feeling our our uh, uh, our uh, uh, burdens in. Gray, uh, are you grading some a little right now? Aren't you, Gray? I am. Yep, uh, a few exams right now that are already waiting for me. So I look forward to joining you even more so in a near future. Yeah, you're welcome to my office. We can, uh, you know, commiserate together over a nice hot cup of coffee and and discuss no, these matters but but you know it's it's it, we got to do it and so, so other things have to go just temporarily and and right now i've decided to put uh d our dear old boy harry potter on the shelf just briefly until i get caught up a uh brief recommendation since we're on translation issues uh i've stu we, we read this in hermeneutics uh, d.a carson's exegetical fallacies yeah. excellent excellent read fun read um, you, you should probably uh, put on your, your humble hat after reading it and listening to sermons. D do not go up to your pastor afterwards and, and tell them that that was an exegetical fallacy. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, a very helpful analysis of kind of some of the things that we do with languages that we probably shouldn't be. That's great. Yeah. Another little helpful thing is, you know, our 
colleague, John Currid, wrote a small little, well, I mean, it's not a thick, but it's a nice little treatment of Calvin and the uh, biblical languages. And uh, that, would might be, that would be another uh, uh, nice, helpful little read. Yeah, that actually, that book was very helpful for me just in seeing not only in Calvin's life, but sort of what the, the, the general discourse was around language during Calvin's time. I was fascinated and it explained for me why John Calvin's exegesis is often so good. Okay. I mean, I think that for some people, they, they, that sounds like that's an obvious statement, but to be honest, there, there's been so much misunderstanding about languages over the last few hundred years as linguistics has really formed as a field out of philology. And whenever I read Calvin's exegesis, I shouldn't say whenever, but oftentimes when I'm reading Calvin's exegesis, I'm struck by how good of an exegete he is, um, how good he is with the Hebrew language. And that book kind of gave me the background for that. So thanks, Peter, for that recommendation too. Uh, I'm reading Johann Bavink's uh, little book right now. Uh, I think it was called uh, Between the Beginning and the End, A Radical Kingdom Vision. Now, Johann Bavink is actually Herman Bavink's uh, uh, not as well-known nephew, but I think he should be uh, more read than he is now because he was a missiologist, but he was a very theological missiologist. He's got a lot of good reflections on a reform doctrine of uh, the religions, religious diversity and general revelation in relation to religious diversity and this particular little book which i haven't seen anyone really interacting with it's just a kind of biblical theology of the kingdom uh, in a very christocentric way and so i would commend that to you i think it's only about 120 pages long it's very good and uh, anything in johan bobbing and anything by him is worth reading for sure that's excellent Thank you. I'm, I'm right now going through, it's the second time I've gone through it, but this is Carol Vanderthorne's Scribal Culture, Scribal Culture in the Making of the Hebrew Bible. Um, he is not coming with evangelical commitments to the text, and I think it actually creates some blind spots for him in terms of how he talks about authorship in the ancient world, but this book is fascinating in just looking at the, um, you know, the discipline of of text transmission and just scribal culture in the ancient world and how that shows up throughout the Hebrew Bible and how it should influence the way that we think about the Hebrew Bible. Again, I don't agree with a lot of his conclusions, but I do think it unpacks some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of cultural linguistic realities that come into play during exegesis. So um, I recommend that to an educated reader who, uh, who's, who's well-versed also in reformed responses or evangelical responses to uh, some of the, some critical commitments that are out there. All right, everybody. It's great talking to you. And uh, I look forward to being back together next week. Take care. Scott's first question better. <laughs> All right. Delete my. <laughs> <laughs>